Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right, everybody, thanks so much for joining us here on Wait, I Know This. Very, very excited today. In case uh, you don't know, guess what? We're video now. We're stepping into the real world here. And uh, welcome to our Operation Smile studios. If you're not familiar with Operation Smile, I suggest that you become familiar with them. They are a phenomenal organization. Uh, they just do great work. I can't say enough about what they do. Keep in mind, they do absolutely free surgeries, okay? Free surgeries. For children, mostly children, there are some adult cases, but mostly children that are born with cleft lips or cleft palates. A lot of their efforts happen right here in the United States. I think a lot of people think of other countries when they think about Operation Smile, but believe it or not, there are lots of families in the United States that this affects, and they do it absolutely free for these people. Check them out. It's operationsmile.org, and they're nice enough also to let us have our uh, studios here. So this, if this is your first time in uh, seeing us in the studios, uh, well, I'll give you a quick little tour. Here's our wide shot. You can see what's going on here. We just opened our studios uh, a little less than a month ago. Um, just very proud about everything. How about this? My my favorite spot in the studio, the replica of the 1940s Philco television right there. And, yes, it is a replica. If you're interested in that, because I've gotten a couple of uh, emails when I posted something about this on the website, waitiknowthis.com, and if you're interested in knowing how that happened, how we did that, I'll give you the guy's name and number. He does phenomenal work and can basically replicate just about anything out there. All right, let's get right to it today. Very excited about this. We had to rush and get this to, together for you last minute. We've been trying to get this gentleman for quite some time to be on the show. I'm going to play one little clip for you right now. So uh, look at this and think back to the days when we all watched this. <laughs> See, that's pretty much all you have to say, I think. You just look at that open right there, and it brings back the memories. That is for sure. Yep, look at that. Uncle Charlie, William Demers, Don Grady as Robbie. And then, ta-da, there it is. Stanley Livingston as Chip from My Three Sons. And he is with us, joins us by telephone. How are you, Stan? Hey, Eric. How you doing today? Good, good, good. Everything good in the world, I hope. Yeah, well, we're starting off another year, so uh, let's hope this is a good one. <laughs> it's been a couple of crazy ones, that's for sure. Boy, that's for sure. That's for sure. The economy taking front and center, that's right. Hey, you know what? Um, let's talk about this now. My Three Sons, of course, back in uh, you know the 60s, but your, your career started much earlier than that, though, and you and I were chatting right before we went on the air. I mean, we're going back to the 1950s when you were just a little one and you got started out. Yeah, I started in the mid-50s, about 1955, 56. Uh, actually, my first uh, professional part where I had a line to say, I, I did some extra work before that, as I was getting my career going, was on Ozzie and Harriet. 
And, uh, yeah, Ozzy Casman was a neighborhood kid, and he was selling uh, Christmas trees in his backyard, <laughs> and I was one of the little kids who came out with a backpack and, and a sleeping bag out of his trees and said, sure, it was mighty good camping in there, Mr. Nelson. And so I started my career, and Ozzy Nelson had me back. Uh, I guess he liked what I did, and I became a regular neighborhood kid on their show for, uh, wow, five years before I started doing My Three Sons, started doing movies and other TV shows. And then in uh, 1959, they were casting for My Three Sons, and we did the pilot. And Who knew? We started up, and it went for 12 years. <laughs> Yeah, little did you know you were going to be doing that a lot longer than I think you probably anticipated in the beginning. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, most shows back then, man, you know, whatever, three, five years. So. Right. But every year was a surprise. We we actually didn't know if we were coming back till sometimes a month before, uh, you know, we'd start shooting. We'd get, a, in those days, a telegram from somebody at CBS saying, uh, welcome back, and we'd do another whole season. But, yeah, we ended up... Going on, becoming the second longest-running sitcom ever on TV, actually right behind Ozzy and Harriet, and we produced uh, 380 episodes over a 12-year period. Now, you know, you think about that in today's terms. I mean, there aren't many, uh, quite honestly, there aren't many um, shows that last that long, um, you know, no. nowadays at least. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we survived as a 12 years two networks uh a lot of time slot changes we were originally on a thursday night and i think we moved to a saturday night then a sunday night and a monday night and actually the show was still in the i think the top 30 uh when it was finally canceled in the end of 72 and uh, the only reason they went off the air was the fcc came down with a ruling that year that the networks could not own shows and exhibit them the antitrust stuff and uh, so we were owned by CBS, so they had a divest of us. They were allowed to keep one show, and they kept their flagship show, uh, which was Gunsmoke. So we were quietly euthanized, but, you know, at least we didn't peter out. We went out kind of with a, uh, with a bang, I guess you'd say. Now, when we look back to the beginnings of the show and then some of the changes that happened, of course, and I know um, you probably know where I'm going with this, but I want to talk about William Demarest and William Frawley because I had the honor, I will say, of interviewing um, uh, Don Grady a couple years ago. Um, great guy, and uh, you know, to those that don't know, Don passed away at a young age, actually, this past summer from cancer. Just such a great guy. But um, he, we talked a little bit about William Frawley and William Demarest, and he was telling me some funny stories about, I, I think it's pretty commonly known that, uh, that Frawley did not like Vivian Vance. And uh, when she played Ethel Mertz and he played Fred Mertz, he, Don said that you guys would be taping across the studio from, I guess at that time, not the, uh, it was, uh, what was the name of the show? The Lucy Show. Yes, and he yeah, they said, were our next-door neighbor. Yes, that's right. Now, is it true, and I'm not going to say anything and see if you remember this, and maybe you don't. If you don't, I'll tell you what he told me. But is it true that he said that sometimes Frawley would get you guys to go across the studio and throw film canisters into the studio <laughs> as kind of a game, saying who could throw it the furthest, but really what he was trying to do was interrupt the scenes when Vivian uh, Vance was Yeah, performing. that's absolutely true. Actually, <laughs> if you've ever dropped a film canister... You know, they're this uh, aluminum, well, it's pretty pretty thick aluminum, but it holds the film reel. But you know, if you've got a bunch of them together and you drop them, it is the loudest racket <laughs> you've ever, it's like cymbals crashing. And Bill hatched this idea to, you know, he was always pulling stunts, so he decided to pull one on, on uh, Vivian Vance, and she was next door, and they would do things to each other. 
so he enlisted my brother and I to kind of scrounge around through the garbage cans and get a bunch of these film tins out and we put them in a box and then we went to the stage and they were rehearsing and when he heard her voice he goes okay now and we just kind of threw the box up in the air and these film tins started crashing to the ground and rolling around and oh my gosh that is I, great. I think she immediately identified the source and you know yelled out Bill! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure she knew right away because it, there was it was no secret that those two really didn't like each other all that much and picked on each other constantly. You know, uh, I think they did did that, and there there probably was I'm sure a tiff at some point or you know some bone of contention. But you know, my own perspective on that is I think they worked past that. But you know what? I think they knew people enjoyed watching them feud, and it just sort of became a thing that they did. I, I'm not quite. Sure, it was you know as uh, malevolent as it sounds. Well, so you might you think maybe that was a little bit of the shtick, and it kind of kept the well. You know, and if you think about it, let's pretend that they didn't really like each other. That's exactly what you'd want for uh, the Lucy show if those two have to play because oh, they you know that was the whole yeah. premise. Yeah, yeah, they were just sort of continuing you know that on stage feud off stage, and they just uh, stayed in character. Basically, they were those characters. To be honest. Now, okay, so obviously William uh, Frawley first, but then he had some health issues and had to leave the show. Do you remember when that happened? Yeah, I think it was about the fourth year. Uh, What happened was every year we'd have to go to a doctor prior to shooting to make sure we were in good health and would survive the season, even me. And uh, Bill went in for his insurance check, and uh, I think (laughs) the story goes they couldn't find a heartbeat. So anyway, they were kind of loath to have him come on the show. I mean, had we shot in a regular fashion, they would have probably gone with him. The the problem was was the way My Three Sons was shot was very unorthodox. Uh, You know, most shows you get a script, and you start shooting it, and you shoot it out. So it takes two or three days, four days if you're a half-hour show, maybe a little over a week if you're an hour show. But because of Fred McMurray's participation in the show, it was designed so that he would have a lot of time off. Um, He would come, he would work for three months, four months, and he would be in every single shot when he worked, and then he would go away and we would shoot all the stuff without him. So to complete the shows on time, it necessitated us working in sometimes four or five shows a day, you know, a scene in the kitchen, another script, a scene in the living room. So the problem with that for Frawley was we were shooting in ten different scripts, and with the advent of his health condition, they didn't think he would survive, and it would probably leave the company in the lurch. If he passed away, we would have ten unfinished shows, as opposed to completing a show, and at least you know you had him. So they decided not to bring him back, and they recast the part with William Demarest. Well, and pretty much when you don't find a heartbeat, that's a pretty good sign that you need to stop working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was sort of pickled, I think, by that point, too. He used to have a liquid lunch every day at Nickel, so... That's funny um, that you said that because in, in Don Grady, and, and for those those that are either listening to the podcast or watching the video version, go back and listen to Don Grady's interview because when I asked him what did he learn from William Frawley, who was such a, you know, a classic older actor, he said, I, you know, I learned a whole lot about acting, but later on in life I learned more about martinis. And he said, uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and well, he said, but that was at a ripe young age because I used to eat lunch with him every single day at Nicodell's for four years. And, uh, you know, Bill did have a, a liquid lunch, and <laughs> it sort of became my unofficial job to get him back to the uh, to the soundstage after the lunch hour, because, you know, if you've had a couple drinks, hey, you know, sure. kind of in the moment, and he didn't want to go back to work, and, <laughs> you know, the producer came through one day and says, 
kid, you got to do us a favor, like, you know, quarter one. you, you got to get him up and move him back towards the studio. So, And yep. he wouldn't listen to anybody else, but for, you know, whatever reason, Bill and I bonded. I never knew either of my grandfathers, and he sort of became a surrogate grandfather to me. That is funny. He listened to me, so I'd get him up and, and moving. <laughs> now, would, did, um, I don't remember in the storyline, <clears throat> I don't remember how they, how did they write him out? Um, or did they? Yeah, no, they, they came up with something where he had to go somewhere. I forget what it was. He, he had to move back to where he was from or something. And then his brother came looking for him and, you know, found out he moved, wherever he moved, he was back to Ireland or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, they concocted something and uh, they introduced the brother of Bub, uh, which was Uncle Charlie, Charlie O'Casey. He was William Francis O'Casey and and Charlie O'Casey, they were brothers, but uh, I don't think they ever performed together on the show. You know, it was a little bit of, yeah, I'm sure Bill was perturbed too, because you know he wasn't dead, and you know that show was his life, and probably hastened his demise. Actually, you know, when you don't have a job and any place to go, I think that's uh, kind of a kiss of death. <laughs> so, well, and, and you know, the older we get, the more we can identify. You know, you think yeah, about yeah, yes, you're you know? hanging on to that, and he'd done that his whole life, and you know, all of a sudden, unceremoniously, you're put out to pasture, and you're replaced with one of your contemporaries who probably was the same age, but just in a much better health. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so they brought uh, William Demerst in, who was, who was a great guy, too, uh, you know, but probably my affinity was more for Bill, you know, because I was nine years old when I met him, and, you know, I was familiar with him from the Lucy show. And So I, how like old said, were you when you started and when you ended the series? Um, I did the pilot when I was nine years old, uh, 19, in 1959, and I was probably just short of being 23 when the last episode aired on the air. I mean, honestly, the you know, the nation watched you guys grow up, literally. Literally. Every pimple, <laughs> every inch I grew. In fact, there was a, a season where they had a real trouble with me with the wardrobe. Cause I, I had one summer where I pro probably grew four inches. So, wow. You know? Yeah, I, I kind of looked like, uh, like somebody from the Gomer Pyle show. My pants were about six inches too short all of a sudden. <laughs> Now, did you, um, all right, so so let's, you know, we, we went from Uncle Charlie to Bub, and then later on, of course, we would see uh, changes with uh, Mike moving away. <laughs> and uh, and the way I understand it, that was a little behind-the-scenes drama going on, right? Yeah, well, Tim wanted to direct uh, some episodes. They actually did let him direct, and he wrote a couple episodes. He was a very talented guy, and, uh, you know, just, wasn't satisfying enough for him just to be an actor on a show. You know, it was a very, very successful show. He wanted to do more. And uh, as I was saying, the way we shot, it necessitated, unlike most shows where you have a director come in and he directs that week's episode, and then next week you have a new director who's preparing while the other one's shooting, uh, we had the same director all season. So whoever got that job was there for the whole year. Anyway, uh, the problem would have been is Tim couldn't just direct you know, a couple of shows. They they kind of made one exception one time for him to do this thing. We shot this one show out, but uh, because they had Frederick Murray involved, it necessitated shooting in all those episodes to get the series done on time. And the problem was, I don't really think Frederick Murray wanted to be directed by a you know a 21 year old kid in his right. eyes. You know, he wanted a more seasoned director there. And, it was awkward, and um, so they just said, no, we can't do that. You know, if you want to do another show, we'll, 
you know, trying to arrange that, and, you know, Tim stood his ground, and they just finally said, thanks, but no thanks, and he said, we'll see you around, and anyway, they kind of worked something out where he came back for one season, I mean, one show, so they could explain his uh, departure, and, and in it, uh, he got married uh, to Meredith McRae, and departed, and <laughs> we never heard from him again, <laughs> so he went into the uh, Twilight Zone or something, I don't know. Oh, that's the way it works. Yeah, kind of strange, yeah, when people leave TV shows. Well, but yeah, that opened were, the door for your brother, right? Well, yeah, uh, Barry was already there. He was playing a friend by then. Uh, there was an original kid, I think his name was Ricky Allen, that played a character named Sudsy the first couple of years. But Barry was getting his career going at that time. He was doing some movies and uh, you know TV pilots. And Actually, he sort of replaced me, I found out, and Harry, when I left. We had done one episode together, and you know the Nelsons obviously knew Barry because of me, and they kept him on. And So he was kind of making the rounds as a, as a child actor and did a lot of work. And um, they started writing parts for him on My Three Sons as, as a friend of mine, a neighborhood kid. And anyway, when Tim left, uh, well, the show was called My Three Sons. So we were in a hurry to find a third son <laughs> and lo and behold, right under their nose. And since there's no nepotism in show business, where he gets apart. <laughs> now, what um, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um... The, and a lot, it's it's really become famous because of of you guys. But the McMurray method, when people hear that, I think the average person may not have a clue what that is. But can you explain what that is to folks? Yeah, I mean it's it's not unheard of in the movie industry that you shoot things out of order. I mean a lot of times, you know, the availability of sets or actors means you're shooting the middle of a film at the beginning or the end of the film at the beginning, and you're shooting it because somebody's going to suddenly become unavailable, unavailable, or working on something else, or sets become unavailable. But yeah, for my three sons, the whole thing was done that way. That's what was kind of extraordinary about my three sons is that they intended to shoot the entire ser series, knowing full well we weren't shooting anything in any order. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a lot more convenient for the actors if you start a script, and you know, the closer to the beginning you start, the easier it is to kind of follow your path or your character's arc through the uh, the show, and you know, temper yourself so you know where you're going with it in terms of what you want to do with the part. But uh, we were all over the map. <laughs> like I said, Fred would come to work. He worked very hard. He was there from 8 till 5 or 6 every day, and he was in every single shot. So uh, about 5, 6 o'clock, uh, he would walk out the door, and a lot of us, well, not me, because I was pretty much underage the first years of the show, but for Don and Tim, they were there at 9, 10 o'clock at night, you know, picking up the close-ups that they hadn't shot during the daytime because they had to get McMurray out of there. So, wow. yeah, it was kind of awkward, but, you know, it just turned into a routine, and, you know, we knew the drill by about the second year, so nobody was flustered with it. It was just a scheduling nightmare. Well, and, and you know, it's, uh, I mean, when he was, he was the star, so, I mean, you think about it, I guess, when you have that kind of clout in a series, they basically let him call the shots, and he, he set the tone for a lot of other shows. I know Family Affair with Brian Keith did the same thing. Yeah, well, it was the same production company. That's oh, that's why. right. That's right. Yeah, it was Don Federson. Yeah, To Rome with Love was done that way. Family Affair, The Smith Family with Henry Fonda. Um, we're done to entice the the stars in, and you know, saying you'll we'll shoot it the same way as what we're doing with with Fred, and you know, same thing with Brian Keith on Family Affair. They would kind of condense his work into uh, kind of maybe two chunks, like they would shoot a lot with him, and then he would go away for the summer, and then come back at the end and pick up everything that hadn't been shot. But, 
Yeah, I mean, in McMurray's case, what, you know, doesn't resonate now. People, you know, know of the show or we all grew up with it. But it was the, the thing that was startling about that show in 1960 was the participation of Fred McMurray. Um, like I say, and that name probably doesn't mean as much to younger people or even maybe middle-aged <laughs> people anymore. But Fred McMurray was a star, a huge, 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 huge yep. movie star that came to do TV, and it was unheard of. It was unheard of. Um, you know, most of the people of his caliber either never did TV or they would show up maybe on a Bob Hope special or a right, Lucy special right. or something like that, but they would never, you know, slowly their careers by being involved in TV. That was, in 1960, considered a step down. But Fred brought his illustriousness as a, as a movie actor. You know, by that point, he had done 80 movies and, I mean, major, major films. 80. And wow. came to TV. Uh, so it the show was handled with kick gloves by the network because of his participation and the people of the brass at the network falling all over themselves that they had a major movie star enticed into doing this series and you know there wasn't anything that we needed that wasn't taken care of and like i said pete the cbs brass were always coming down to the set to you know meet fred or hang out with him because they just idolized this guy you know it would be now as if i mean the closest i can think of is if Tom Cruise suddenly said, hey, you know what? I got young kids. I don't want to be on the road doing movies. I want to be at home with them during the summer and go on vacation. I want to have a regular life. And he opted to do a TV series, and you know, and it went on for 12 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I never thought of it that way, but, but uh, I mean, and I do know that in that time period, obviously TV was kind of looked at. A lot of the stars were like, I'm not doing television, you know, that's beneath me. Yeah, it was definitely uh, yeah, a different attitude, you right. know, by the industry towards people that participated in it, and you were either a TV actor or you were a movie actor, and there was this invisible line there that was very difficult to cross, and for certain people who had a movie career, but had tried to do a little bit of TV, uh, suddenly they were tarnished in the movie industry, and, you know, they were usually relegated <laughs> to doing B-movies after that. Um... But, you know, in Fred's case, you know, he was probably the exception to the rule because he was such a huge, huge star already. Um, well, I remember that, the Son of Flubber movie. Yeah, he, he kind of paved the way to make it palatable for movie yeah. stars to come in and do it. That's how they got Brian Keith and, um, see, Henry Fonda did the Smith family. Well, that's true. I didn't think about that. You're right. Yeah, John Forsythe. I mean, he was pretty much a movie act. Well, he did do Bachelor Father, so he kind of did it. But, you know, he also was another guy that had a movie career going and, and seemed to be able to find his way back into the movies in between. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing thing. Like I said, it was just extraordinary when it was on. And, I mean, you know, My Three Sons was what it was, but it wouldn't have been anything without Fred McMurray. Had they got another actor, it, it just would have been another kind of show. But, I mean, but, the, and you know, the way they... the press treated it and, you know, other people in the industry sure. just... Kind of made it an extraordinary experience. I mean, as the show went on, you know, I guess you get to a point where you, you kind of just play it out. I mean, there was nowhere else for that show to go. All you know, the boys had all grown up, and some <laughs> got married, and the whole nine yards. You know, you just like you didn't know where to go next. Well, yeah, and I mean, the tone of TV was changing, and we we weren't really keeping up with the times. I mean, the show tried to hang on to the values it had in the beginning, which were very homespun and kind of nineteen late 1950s oriented, and, you know, that kind of served well in the, in the beginning of the 60s, but by the time, you know, the race riots were happening and Vietnam was happening and, you know, the pill came about and, you know, we were like in some insulated 
bubble like we were living in Willoughby in the Twilight Zone or something. You know, we never had problems that Dad couldn't solve. So, um, yeah, probably in, in a way sort of, you know, just didn't fit anymore. I mean, I think people enjoyed watching it because it, yeah, it was an escape from reality, basically, at that point. Sure. Well, you know, and, and shows like Family came along and um, All in the Family, you know, which are really dealing with, with issue-oriented shows. Oh, yeah. And real issues, you know, teenage pregnancy and venereal disease. And <laughs> we didn't have any of that in my third son. Then there's the Worst of what happened is uh, Uncle Charlie couldn't find his colander to make spaghetti. <laughs> That's as bad as it got. Yeah, it's about as bad as it got, or Ernie's got a hangnail or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Because a lot of the sitcom, that was the time when everything was changing. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it really was. And I mean, we as, you know, human beings and actors tried to introduce a few things and push on the producers going, you know, we're not dressed right. You know, kids don't dress like this anymore. And, you know, <laughs> I wanted bell-bottom pants and, you know, wide stripes and big, thick belts and beetle boots. And they're like, no, 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 we want to kind of keep you know, looking this way. And you know what? Uh, I pushed a little bit, and they kind of relented to some of the things, but I look at those shows now, and they're the ones kind of, you know, from about 69, 70, 71, where I grew my hair a little bit longer. Yes. And you know what? They do date the show. Had I just acquiesced and just did as I was told, you know, I, it would have kept the same tone, which, you know, it's amazing. As, as a young adult, you know, you think you're pushing to do something revolutionary and just, you know, you're just trying to make it look more like reality, but the reality they wanted was a better reality for the show. I'll give them that now, now that I'm older and look at it and go, okay, now I understand what these guys are right, trying to right. do, why they, why they didn't want me to do that, because it dates the show. Oh, it boy, we really it. change our minds, don't we, as we get older? It's so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that was another kind of show where you had your hair long. I, you know, I could have moved <laughs> over and been, been meathead over on Family Affair or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and did the stars of that time hang out together? Like, I know when I interviewed Kathy Garver from Family Affair, um, you know, she said some did and some didn't. But but since Hollywood was a much smaller place back then, and you're thinking about only three networks, really, you know, that, um, you know, to be a star really meant to be a star. And uh, and she said some, but some people would hang out between shows. Did you did you hang it, out with any know, actors from other shows? It really shows? depended on, yeah, who the actor was. Obviously, we weren't, you know, hanging out with Fred McMurray. I mean, we would right. see him at social functions we would go to. But, you know, we were not like, hey, you guys are so great. I'm going to bring you home. And <laughs> June, June and I are going to, you know, just commandeer you guys. No, I mean, you know, he, he was a really nice guy. But, you, you know, what? He's like 50-some years old, and, you know, I'm 10, 14. You know, so that, that wasn't going to happen. But I would say, you know, in terms of the age brackets, I think it had a lot to do with it just because that's your peers. So, you know, I was closer to Don Grady and Tim Considine, who, you know, we would see somewhat off off stage. Uh, Don and I, you know, would get together. Don would come pick me up, especially before I drove. Sure. Tim, probably the one I'm closest to besides my brother. I mean, obviously, I'm close to him, and uh, we saw each other every day, as we still do. But uh, was Tim Considine for whatever reason, you know, I really bonded with him, and he was kind of like an older brother, you know. And I, I never had an older brother, so whether he was just sort of fulfilling my my dream of having one, but you know, he kind of seemed to go out of his way to pick us up and to take us to movies or have us over to his house to swim. And you know, he was just a young guy then too, twenty two, twenty three year old guy. So I'm surprised he even did that normally that age bracket doesn't have time for sure. kids but he seemed to make time and tim and i are still very very 
fast friend. In fact, I see him, God, I don't know how many times, you know, at least four or five times during the year. We usually go to the Indy 500 together. Oh, and, cool. Yeah, some other things. And, in fact, I usually go to his house on New Year's Day, his birthday, and I've been doing that for 30 years. Uh, unfortunately, this year I got a cold, so I didn't go anywhere. But, uh, yeah, well, I'm probably the closest to him. Tim, you know, I mean, Don, I saw pretty frequently, probably, you know, four or five times a year. Don was a talented musician. Yeah, we talk or email, but, you know, it's not like we, our families did things together or anything like that. I mean, and I think, and Don Grady, I was saying, he was a talented musician. Very talented. You know, I, I, my own feeling is, I think he would have had a much bigger musical career had he not been on My Three Sons. Again, there were those prejudices, like there were for TV actors not being able to get into the movies back then, and... Same thing with the people who were involved in the music industry. You know, if you were found and you had a music career and that's what you were, that's what you were. But somehow you were tainted. If you were, if you had a, got a musical career going because you were on TV, you weren't looked at it the same way. You were just kind of looked at as this uh, oddity. You know, I mean, the few people did have some success with it. Shelley Fabre, you know, had that right. one big hit, Johnny Angel, yep. and. Paul Peterson Paul had Peterson, a right. brief career, but you know the the songs that they did were actually pretty good songs. Uh, Johnny Crawford, same thing. But you were kind of looked as a novelty act. But I mean, the bottom line is uh, Don Grady was a very, very you know talented musician, composer, songwriter, and it's just the inter- industry's perception of you is just this actor, you know, on a TV sitcom. You know, how how good could you be? But right. you know, when the show was over, and he he proved himself. I mean, he went on to have a substantial career as a composer, arranger, songwriter. Um, after the show, and probably succeeded there as, as well as he did yeah. on on My Three Sons. Uh, same thing with Johnny Crawford. Johnny is another amazingly talented uh, musician, composer. Um, you know, he has a big band. He's the orchestra leader, and he's a great singer. He's kind of focused on you know, kind of 30s and 40s music, but uh, for what he does, he does it as well as you can do it. Well, and you know, it's funny. It's it, had that been the 1970s, then it, the exact opposite was true. It's like if you were on TV in the 70s, you had to have a song. You, you... <laughs> well, I had one too. Oh, <laughs> did you? I didn't know it. that. You know, mostly for bone, it's like hideous. Um, when I was about, I think I was either 12. I think I might have been 12 years old when I recorded. But it was during that rash of, you know, producers trying to find actors on TV shows to do songs. But I mean, you know, I'm just a little <laughs> kid. What the heck did I know? And I'm not even really a singer but uh they these producers talked my parents into recording this song it was called hairspray and it, it's a circle maybe you can find well actually you know what if you go to my website oh, com, i think there's a spot where you can click on it. i finally found it and put a mp3 file well, there. That but is... it, it's it's cute it, it's anyway it's this you See, know that's, kid. What, that's one of the things we say on the show we say that you get trivia on this show that you don't get on a normal website because <laughs> well, but... that is the takeaway from the day yeah, that that is it. Well, the flip side to that was called Pen Pal, but I remember recording it, and <laughs> they had these uh, compressed air cans, and the, the song is, and it's like, one who invented hairspray in a can, girl next door is a menace, one thing I can't stand when she goes, on her hair, anyway, we were recording the song, and they ran out of compressed air, so I think they ran out and got cans of, like, Raid, anything that would make a... <laughs> so I was getting raid sprayed in my face all night, you know, and oh my gosh, probably why I didn't grow to be six feet tall. Um, stunt, but, a chemical stunt. 
Yeah, the chemicals stunned me. I got the DDT. There you go. But the final irony is this song actually did did amazingly well <laughs> in one city, in the city of Stockton. It was the number one song in 1962 so for in Stockton, probably five you're minutes a folk or something. <laughs> anyway, I remember being invited to Stockton. I had to fly up with my dad, and there was a show there. And I performed it, but you know, in those days, we, you know, you milly vanilli it. They had the record there, and you were up on stage, and they put the right, record exactly. on, and you looked like you were just lip syncing. But everybody did that. Uh, but I did the show with Shelley Fabre, and uh, another child actor, a little bit older than me, but he actually was a singer. Uh, his name was Eddie Hodges. Uh, he's the guy that sang High High Hopes with Frank Sinatra yes, in the movie yes, yes. A Hole in the Head, um, and Dwayne Eddy. I mean, you know, it's probably one of the best guitarists. You know, he was known for doing guitar instrumentals, uh, electric guitar, which is a novelty back in 62. Um, And I I was very, very into music, so obviously I knew who everybody was. uh, That's great. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of (laughs) of strange, and then that was it. (laughs) I love that. All right, so now, as the show's winding down, and a lot of people joke and they say, this is almost the cousin Oliver of the Brady Bunch version for My Three Sons, but uh, Dodie comes into play uh, after Steve Douglas gets married, and that's played by Don Lynn. And am I right about this? This is another little piece of trivia today. Was Don Lynn the real sister of Leif Garrett? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Leif used to be on the set all the time with her. I mean, it was before the Leif Garrett, I think, the public knew. Yes, he was just a right. child actor back then, and his mom was looking for work for him, and you know, brought him to the set in hopes they would find some. I think he may have even worked on the show a couple times. I really can't remember, but uh, yeah, he was a very nice kid, and you know, unfortunately, he grew up in the area era of drugs and rock and roll, yeah. and you know, kind of got immersed in it as some people do. I've seen a lot of my peers, you know, have issues that they've gone through and worked their way out of. And well, and sometimes that's what happens with child stars. They get it all so quick and so yeah, long, you know? Yeah, you know, yeah, child stars of my era, you know, really, I think, had a rough time. And again, it was the prejudices of the industry towards us, uh, you know, not that you shouldn't have to prove yourself and get jobs on the merit of whatever you're doing right now, not what you did, but, you know, right. can you can you uh, handle this role, and can you do it, you know, believably, as any actor would? They, you walk in, go through the casting process, and prove yourself. Well, the problem was, and a lot of it is psychological, that, you know, a lot of us were on TV shows and were big stars, but I, I think for whatever bit of wisdom I either had in my head naturally, or I don't know how I knew this, the day after the show was over, I go, hmm, I'm back to square one. I called my agent and said, I don't care what it is, one line, one scene, guest starring part, commercial, I want to do it. I don't want you to not send me out because it's not the lead in the series or lead in a movie. That's I just smart, want to go actually. out and prove myself all over again, and I'm, I have no problem with that. And I remember talking to some of my friends. They were just like, I'm not going to do that. You know, I just came off of a hit show for five years. You know, I, I shouldn't have to do that. They should just give me the part. And I, you know, I had read where Marlon Brando had auditioned for Godfather. And, you know, I was remembered that. I thought, well, wait a minute. Right. If, if he had auditioned, who am I? <laughs> I'm no Marlon Brando. So I just got it in my head very early on that if you're going to stay in the industry as an actor or, or as anything in this industry, you got to go fight for it and go get it. Yeah, so, absolutely. That was as opposed to, to resting on my laurels and not getting hired, you know, I went out and fought for it. And fortunately for me, too, at, at that point in time, uh, I think when I was about 16, I got interested on the other side of the camera and 
directing, acting, I mean, directing and editing and producing and, you know, drove everybody crazy on My Three Sons, the, the tech people and the producers to learn all I could learn about that. And by the time I was, you know, 20, 21, I had a production company and it was wow. in commercials and industrials and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, uh, worked my way up to, you know, finally I've produced movies, been involved in TV series and uh, all, you know, I've had a career doing the other side of the camera too, but... Yeah, and you were uh, smart, I saw too. the writing on the wall, so to speak, and I thought, it might be very tough to make it as an actor, you know, coming out of a series like My Three Sons, because you're so highly identified with that part. Right. And, you know, today that would be no problem. That's the irony. I look at it now and go, oh, my God. You know, these people come out of TV series, and fortunately the people in the movie industry look at it and go, this person's going to bring a huge audience to the theater, you know, like a Jennifer Aniston or whatever. Um, you know, in the era we came out of, we had even bigger audiences. Boy, you know, today's audience on a network, you got 20 million people watching you. Back in 1960 through 70, if you were a hit series, you had 60, 70 million people watching you wow. every week. Wow. So, yeah, well, there were only three networks. Right. You had CBS, ABC, and NBC. And if you were a star on one of those shows, I mean, it just made total business sense to do that. But the problem was it was in the minds of the people that cast the shows to have this cast system where you know you're either this cast or that cast and you know, we were the lower cast people basically because we were on tv and it was very hard to have somebody casting a movie see you because they just thought of you uh in another way and i remember coming up against that so many times and you know and the funny part was you were either cast in something because you were that person, or they didn't even want to see you right. because they thought you know you were so identifiable as that part. And I understood that too. You know, you have a director doing a big movie, and it's kind of what happened to George Reeves and Superman. You know, you yes. walk into a scene, and all of a sudden everybody's in the audience going, "Oh, oh, look, it's Superman!" You know, and it's supposed to be 1860 or something. So you just ruined the movie, <laughs> at least in their their mind. So right, yeah, like they just want you to be a blank tablet and you know for somebody like myself it's either you're getting the breaks and getting to do other works so or you're being perceived another way as an actor and sometimes you can break that jody foster did kurt russell did but you you know it, the, the opportunities yep. you know were just a matter of luck as to whether you're going to get one of those and that what you did succeeded so that you could go on i mean the thing that kurt russell did after his disney career where he did that uh TV movie for John Carpenter about Elvis. Oh I mean, yeah, I remember it. that. I mean, you can't look at that and find Kurt Russell there. It's, it's you know, he's a nut. he was believable. And that got his career going. Yeah, he was phenomenal in that. Well, yeah, he's you know, phenomenal. it sounds like you, you've. Uh, I mean, obviously, you you were smart enough to realize back in those days that hey, you know, I, I'm taking any role. I'm going to do whatever I can, and you've made a career on either side of the camera. I mean, not a lot of stars can say that from that time period. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had the success that Ron Howard's had, but, you know, until <laughs> 60 years later, uh, how many Ron Howards are there? Uh, he's the only one I can think Here, of. There are not your, a lot of child actors that have gone. He and maybe Jody Foster. Here's your funny yeah. story, your funny Ron Howard story. I was doing a public appearance once in, in my area where I work in local television, and uh, George Lindsay, who played Goober on The Andy Griffith Show, was there. And I asked him, I said, do you have any regrets? You know, a lot of actors hate to get typecast and that. And he said, yeah, that I wasn't nicer to that dang red-headed little kid. <laughs> <laughs> that was George Lindsay's only regret from the Andy Griffith show there. Yeah, yeah. No, I've known the, the Howard family since, gosh, since they got in the business. Yeah, Rance and his mom and Clint and 
and Ron, and, you know, not to take anything away, Ron, you know, he wasn't handed anything. Believe me, he went out and got it, and in, and in the final analysis, he was a very talented guy, and yeah. he, he deserves everything that he got, because he deserved it. I mean, if you're that talented, and, and you've somehow managed to master the business side of it, and, you know, and you've had a little bit of luck, uh, you know, he parlayed that into, it's, it's probably... You know, I mean, on equal par with somebody like Steven Spielberg at this right, point. Right, right. The two top dogs in the business in terms of directing. and Amazing. You know, I mean, when you guy. consider the odds were against that just because yeah. of the forces of nature back in those days did not want you to have those opportunities. I mean, it, it probably helped that he was in a, you know, after his childhood career was over, he did American Graffiti and getting cast in that, uh, yeah. you know, kind of gave him a second breath in the industry and, uh, and then right out of that, that it spawned the Happy Days, which, you know, even that show was kind of weird because he came on, he was a star, and then all of a sudden this little side character <laughs> took over the show, and you know, what the hell is this? Right. Oh, and, you know, but he, he had the other thing going by that point anyway. You know, he'd been directing shorts and other types of, you know, smaller type films to show what he could do. and and, you know, fortunately he had those, so when he finally met up with Roger Corman, it was for Eat My Dust, you know, he said, hey, yeah, I'll be in it, but here's, here's the deal, I get to direct it. And they, they made a deal, I guess, with him, do that, and then he ended up doing Grand Theft Auto. Oh, I know. Well, yeah. and, you know, that's the way it works out for some people. I mean, you guys did a great job. You know, your show, you got to be proud of what you did, because... What I you am, mean? you know, you know, you go through phases where, you know, I felt that it hurt my career, but I wouldn't have a career without it, right. so you can't really say that, but when you're young, you're, you're a knucklehead, so, <laughs> and then, yeah, you know, I, I think what really changed my mind was probably in the 80s, about the time Nickelodeon, Nick and I came out, and the show was being revived, and they were showing the old black and whites, and, you know, I live in L.A., so people here are pretty inert to stars or TV actors walk around. Nobody ever comes right. up to you here. You know, it's, they couldn't care less. So, But I would go out of town. I was doing plays with my brother at that point in time. And you know, the way people fawned over us and, you know, the whole town would go crazy. You go to Kansas City, you know, it's a small town, but it's big. You know, you're talking about a, probably a million, million and a half people. The whole town would go insane. And I'm like, what is this? It's crazy. <laughs> crazy we're you know it's like already what 10 years after the show right. 15 years after the show but the, it was then that i realized how much that show had permeated the minds and culture of people who grew up watching it and they just adored the show and loved it loved the characters and you know everybody's just so nice to you because they felt like they knew you you're their brother you're the person living next door the kid down sure. the street so and you know i still get that feeling when people find out who i am well i wanna... doesn't matter whether the uh, you know they're just people you meet on the street, or actually last year we had this incredible honor for My Three Sons here in Los Angeles on uh, May 16th, I think it was. They declared uh, June, or was it June 16th? Maybe it was June 16th, uh, 2012, My Three Sons Day in Los Angeles, when we had appeared before the city council or oh, awarded cool. these certificates. But, you know, it was funny, in the anteroom after the ceremony, all the city councilmen came in who were these stern, taciturn, <laughs> politicians sitting at their pulpits <laughs> when we came in. And they turned into little kids in the room going, oh, my, that was my favorite show. Oh, I just loved you. And, you know, they turned into human beings. And, right. You know, we're letting their guard down because there's right. nobody to see it. And, you know, and then when it was over about a half hour later and they had to go back to doing city business, and they just turned into these old curmudgeons again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, listen, um, I want to thank you for, for uh, stopping by, uh, Stan. I really appreciate you taking time out. It's a great show, and, and uh, thanks, you know, thanks, I'm sure yeah. you're proud of it. Yeah, I, I am. Well, like I said, we push on and do a lot of things in our life. Like I said, I'm involved behind the scenes right now. We've got a partner. In fact, uh, I guess you probably heard of Steve Railsback. Yes. Yeah, he's my business partner. We're okay. trying to yeah, yeah, raise funding right now for a film called Barso that he's going to direct and I'm producing uh, through my company. And then, as I mentioned to you, too, you know, there's another side of me. I've been doing this artwork stuff my whole life. I think I mentioned to you, I just uh, launched uh, an art gallery, an online art gallery. And, you know, so I don't know if your fans are interested in sure. art, but it's kind of interesting to see a, another side of somebody you thought you knew. If they want to check it out, they can go either, you know, to my Real website, the fan site, stanleylivingston.com, or if they want to see the art, they can just go to stanleylivingstonart.com cool. and check it out. Yeah, we'll I think people will be it. totally amazed at what they see there. Good. Well, no, we will definitely do that. And, I, you know, once again, uh, thanks for taking time out. I, you know, people appreciate this. We love to live, you know, relive that time period. It means something to everybody in their lives, and, and you're a part of that. So thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just lucky I was on a show that turned out to be a touchstone for everybody. And, that's right. You know, that's even though, right. Yeah, we're kind of like, uh, you know, used clothing in the old days were like a hand-me-down show. You know, our generation handed it down to our kids, their kids handed it down out being handed down on to the next generation thanks right. to me tv yeah, we're on it every morning so well, thanks dan have a great day we appreciate you stopping by buddy we'll see you again soon talk to you soon thank you right. have a great day well i just want to hear the music there you go you see Nice guy. I mean, that's what that's what it's all about. You you just wanna you wanna talk to these folks and you wanna get a an idea, a feel for what they're all about, and that just tells you right there that uh, Stan Livingston is a class A guy and somebody that gets it too. You know, a lot of people in, in Hollywood just don't get it. They want to live that forever and and can't let go of it. And I I think he's just got a good grasp on things. Really cool. All right. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by for wait. I know this, folks. Um, we are efforting right now to get Lee Merriweather. Hopefully that'll be our next guest, and we'll talk about all things. Batman. And actually, I want to thank Yvonne Craig, who played Batgirl in the original TV series. She led me to Lee Merriweather, so hopefully that will work out. Thanks so much for stopping by, folks. Don't forget the website, waitiknowthis.com. If you want the podcast to get it on the go instead of the video version, you can get that at waitiknowthis.com or... You can also check us out on uh, iTunes. All you got to do is search for my name, Eric Chilton, or wait, I know this, and you'll get it. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. We will see you next time on the fastest growing retro pop culture celebrity interview show on the web. Wait, I know this. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 